Okay. Good afternoon, everyone. We'll get started. Um, this is panel two of day three of <laughs> the living room. It's actually the, the session before last of our forum since the fair closes today. I'm very happy that we're able to have this conversation between Elaine Mohtefi and Sophie Azeb. Um, they, the conversation will be self-explanatory or, or will, it will, um, you will know what it's about uh, in more detail in a second. I will just introduce the speakers themselves. Uh, Sophie Azeb is currently, not for very long, a provost's postdoctoral fellow at New York University. She will be joining um, the University of Chicago uh, in the fall. She is working on a book project titled Another Country, Constellations of Blackness in Afro-Arab Cultural Expression, which is very much related to some of the points that will be tackled in the discussion. And it theorizes how blackness is articulated and mobilized by African-American, African, and Afro-Arab writers, musicians, and political figures in North Africa and in Europe in the post-war 20th century. Uh, and she has been also writing about these issues in perhaps a less scholarly or more kind of um, wider audience type of way for Africa as a country, but also for Chimarenga, for the New Inquiry, for the Funambulist, among others. Elaine Mohtefi is a, an American writer and painter and was also a journalist at, at a certain point. Uh, she worked with the uh, uh, FLN, which is the National Liberation Front, during the Algerian War for Independence in the New York office, lobbying the United Nations. And then from Algerian independence on in 62, she lived there for a number of years and one, was one of the organizers of uh, the Pan-African Festival of the summer of 69. Um, as you see, the conversation is called Intimate Strangers, the Black Panthers in Algiers. Uh, one of the reasons for that is that uh, Elaine was instrumental in the establishment of the international section of the Black Panther Party in Algiers when the Cleavers arrived there in the late 60s. All of this um, I came across by reading a piece that Elaine Mohtefi published in the London Review of Books last year. Um, which was an extraordinary piece that you can find online, actually, just Google her name and the LRB. And much more is going to be in her book, which is coming out this summer in August from Verso. It's titled Algiers, Third World Capital, Black Panthers, Freedom Fighters, Revolutionaries. There's a, a leaflet on that table there that you can pick up on your way out so you don't forget that this book is, uh, is coming out. Uh, and Elaine was telling me it's the first time she is speaking about this in public, so consider yourselves lucky. And uh, she has prepared a small introductory kind of statement that she will read, uh, and then the conversation with Sophia will start. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you all for coming. <laughs> um, how do I start? Okay. I lived in Algiers from 1962, the year of independence from France. The Black Panthers arrived in Algiers in 1969, and my connection with them was immediate, a connection that was significantly both personal and political. Since I, oh, sorry. <laughs> Since I identified with them as an American, and shared their goals of justice and revolution. Those were heady times. We remember them as the 60s. The Panther men and women were essential in shaping the era, giving it voice and content. Under the ominous thunder shadow of the American war in Vietnam. Wait a minute. Oh, okay. <laughs> I can do it, I think. Okay, yeah. Okay, uh, so those were heady times. We remember them as the 60s. The Panther men and women were essential in shaping the era, giving it voice and content. Under the ominous, thunderous shadow of the American war in Vietnam, it was a period of awakening to the plight of African Americans and their struggle for political and social justice. The Black Panther Party elevated protest and activism to new heights. 
their militancy at the community level, the patterns they initiated are mirrored in today's movements for civil, social, and economic justice. Their activity was reported on and applauded around the world. Algeria was a third world leader at the time, alongside India, China, Cuba, Nasser's Egypt, and sub-Saharan African countries like Ghana, Guinea, and Tanzania. It was a country that placed itself on a moral plane, a high ground that could in no case condone colonialism or imperialism, nor racism. Their leaders' public statements were strong and vibrant. I can never forget the words spoken by Ahmed Bimbella, Algeria's first president, to the founding meeting of the Organization of African Unity in 1963, and I quote, let us all agree to die a little so that the people still under colonial rule may be free and African unity may not become a vain word." Unquote. And when Bembella in New York for Algeria's first session as a full-fledged member of the United Nations met with Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, much was made of those encounters of intimate strangers. The press accused Bambella of attempting to intervene in American politics at a time when Main Street American politicians would not be seen shaking hands with those black leaders. There is absolutely no doubt that the war fought by the people of Algeria was the motor force that liberated the French colonies of Africa, beginning with Tunisia and Morocco in 1956 and the sub-Saharan colonies in 1960. 17 of France's African possessions attained their independence in that one year, 17. It took another two years, however, before France reluctantly let go and negotiated the terms of Algeria's own freedom. Important to keep in mind as well is that during the seven and one half year war for independence, the National Liberation Front and the National Liberation Army started training troops and personnel for the liberation movements of other African countries. Once independent, Algeria was open and generous in its support of liberation organizations from every continent, providing military training and arms and a media platform, in particular to militant groups from South Africa, Namibia, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Angola, Guinea-Bissau, and Cape Verde Islands, and also to the Black Panther Party of the United States, welcomed with open arms. The Black Panthers arrived clandestinely in Algeria. Eldridge Cleaver and his wife Kathleen were the first. Then came others, some roundabout through Cuba or Canada, others directly from the United States. There may have been 30 in all at some point. 30 intimate strangers. They arrived indeed with little knowledge of Algeria. Whatever they did know came from liberation war images and from the film, The Battle of Algiers, or from Frantz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, a book that had become their revolutionary Bible. Some of them, Eldridge Cleaver included, had been in and out of Islam, essentially the Americanized Islam of Malcolm X. On the other hand, they had only a distant understanding of colonialism and its devastation, or of the war for independence and its crippling effects. Algeria at independence was over 90% illiterate. There were only 500 university graduates after 132 years of French colonialism. It was overwhelmingly a rural society. American slavery, segregation, and ghetto life could be compared to colonization politics and methods. But by the second half of the 20th century, the lines of confrontation within racist American society were open, fluid, and essentially urban. The men and women of the Black Panther Party were contemporary. They were modern, efficient, technically savvy, and hip, in no way undeveloped. 
They were, however, unilingual and spoke neither of Algeria's two main languages, French or Arabic. In Algiers, they became the intimate strangers, black Americans in a third world context. They were admired, emulated, and most probably misunderstood, for they weren't cartoon figures or stage stars. They were militants, many of them fleeing from the law. They were exiles who had found a base from which to continue their struggle. I dare say there were few countries in the world that would have accepted them and allowed them to operate politically from their shores. The Panthers' arrival in Algiers in 1969 occurred just as the first Pan-African Cultural Festival was about to open. It provided them with an intimate view of Africa, especially of black Africa. For the intimate strangers, the Panthers present on the streets and in the theaters of Algiers, it meant that they were coming face to face with their own roots for the first time in their lives. It was exhilarating. Archie Shep, who brought a group of African-American musicians to Algiers for the festival, told me as he was leaving the city, quote, I have just lived one of the most profound experiences of my life. The Algerian authorities had given the Panthers access to a storefront on one of the main thoroughfares of the city, where they opened an Afro-American center during the festival and received young Algerians all day, every day, till well into the night giving talks, answering questions, showing films. The exchanges were rich and the Panthers felt welcome. They distributed posters and literature freely and the young Algerians couldn't get enough of them. Despite the language gap, they flocked the center at all hours, fascinated by the intimate strangers. The Panthers stood out. They were physically bigger and taller. Their afros distinguished them as did their clothes. They wore dashikis and jeans and, and t-shirts. The Panthers were flashy, uninhibited, uninhibited and hardworking. I retain images of them, those intimate strangers, sitting at cafe terraces in the center of the city, driving through town in their Volkswagen minibus, at their press conferences in the Kasbah, at the, at the Falan's offices, as well as at their own headquarters. They cooperated closely with other liberation organizations having offices there, in particular groups from sub-Saharan Africa, but also with the Viet Cong and the Palestinian liberation organizations. It was, quote, the first time in this, uh, no, as Eldridge Cleaver announced the day they inaugurated their headquarters, it was, quote, the first time in the struggle of the black people in America that they have established representation abroad. The Panthers' task in Algiers was tremendous. Communication with the United States was difficult, slow, and costly, carried out through the post office. Clumsy wideband films and scratchy telephone calls monitored by who knows how many government, foreign government operators. The FBI and the CIA pursued them, destroying networks, mounting plots and scams, and exerting pressure. The demise of the Black Panther Party in Algiers was essentially a result of the failings of the party in the United States, but also of their own shortcomings. When a group of hijackers arrived in the country with a million dollars in hand for having exchanged the lives of the air passengers for safe passage to Algeria, the authorities granted the air pilots, pirates political asylum, but returned the money to the airlines. In an open letter, the Panthers accused the president of Algeria. They wrote, quote, those who deprive us of this finance are depriving us of our freedom. Algiers was hosting and training liberation movements from every continent. A lot was at stake. They could not allow international hijackers to turn them into a miscreant nation that failed to abide by the rules. Nevertheless, despite their clash with the Panthers, the Algerians held steady and supported them to the end. A good number of the group left Algiers in the second half of 1972. Cleaver himself lived in Algiers from June 1969 until January 1973. A few stayed on, in particular Don Cox, the Panthers' former field marshal, for a number of years. Some of us remember the Panther connection to the Third World. 
as it became reality in Algeria with nostalgia. I retain the, uh, the image of them in Algiers, those intimate strangers, their sleek black bodies walking tall. Okay. <laughs> Um, thank you so much, Elaine, for reading that. And thank you to Omar and the other organizers here for having us. I am super excited because uh, I also first encountered your writing uh, in the LRB uh, excerpt, I believe, from this forthcoming memoir last year. And I had no idea you lived in New York. So I was really psyched um, to hear that you did live here and that I would be able to meet you. Um, and I have been working on the Black Panthers in Algiers, Frantz Fanon in Algeria for such a long time. And so I was really profoundly moved by a lot of the sort of these more intimate tales that you have and the narrative that you weave um, as a white American Jewish woman who's finding herself basically organizing a good chunk of what we now know as the cultural wing as well as the journalistic wing of, of uh, the post-independence Algerian liberation uh, uh, struggle. Um, so I think the first thing I'd really like to ask you and that maybe others are probably curious about um, is how did you become involved with the Algerian liberation movement in the first place? Well, I was living in France and you couldn't live in France in those days without taking a position on Algeria. The war had started in 1954 and um, everyone had a point of view and everyone took a stand. So when I became a conference, or, uh, uh, I became a translator and an interpreter, I worked at international conferences, I met Algerians here and there and uh, I started to get to know them. I would take a strong position. I had uh, uh, marched in uh, anti-war protests and so on. And at some point in about 1959, I started organizing an international conference in Accra, in Ghana. Uh, I was the conference organizer for the World Assembly of Youths three-year uh, conference. And uh, uh, bringing people, uh, young people from all over the world to Accra for the conference. And there I met Franz Fanon, who was the uh, Algerian ambassador to Africa stationed in Accra. He, uh, the, the conference lasted for three weeks and I really, we really got to know each other. And the Algerian delegate to that conference was uh, Mohamed Sahnoun. Mohammed had been um, had been a militant in Algiers uh, in the National Liberation Front. Had been arrested with a number of other people, and tortured, imprisoned. When he was released, uh, he was given a scholarship to uh, NYU. And uh, through the uh, Algerian National Student Association. So I met these two people and uh, we became very close, the three of us. The conference lasted three weeks. We had time to get to know each other. And so when I came back to New York um, after the conference, I, uh, Mohamed Sanoun introduced me to the head of the Algerian office who asked me to come work with them. That was Abdul Qadr Shonderli. And so I worked at the Algerian office. We were four people in trying to influence the United Nations to pass positive resolutions on Algerian independence and attacking France. Uh, at the time, the French delegation numbered 95. And uh, as well as having an embassy in uh, Washington. But we held our own. We got an improvement in the resolution year after year. And finally, in 1961, the, uh, even the United States um, withdrew from its original position, which was always negative, to uh, a non-support, but uh, 
uh, it didn't uh, block the resolution. So that uh, was a positive resolution at the United Nations in 1961, and Algerian independence took place in 1962. Uh, I guess that. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm impressed that you can hold all of these dates in your head. I can barely tie my shoes in the morning. Um, so. In this Accra conference, when you where you meet Fanon, um, you actually have a very, uh, I thought, quite charming moment uh, when you meet him in, in your memoir. Um, so Fanon spoke very basic English. So he actually, I I have read that he was actually quite annoyed uh, being based in Accra because he found it difficult to get on linguistically. Yeah. Uh, but you caught his accent right away one day when he asked you for directions. Yeah. And you write, um, you caught his accent and answered in French, leading the way. And this is Elaine. Uh, he and I spoke, making a connection immediately. He told me later that his first thought was that I was French. When he realized I was not, he was relieved. We could empathize. <laughs> And you went dancing with him. Yes, we did. We went dancing. Please tell us about dancing, dancing with Franz Fanon. We Galois together. <laughs> you smoked Galois together, which uh, the FLN had banned French cigarettes. Yeah. So you were both breaking the rules. Yeah. And um, you, I, I mean, most, you talk quite a bit, as you should, uh, about your facilitation of the Black Panther Party in Algiers, uh, your relationship with Eldridge Cleaver and his wife, at the time, Kathleen Neal Cleaver, um, I was captivated by these stories of Fanon that you tell because uh, some of them run quite counter to a lot of the popular history that has circulated about him. Um, mostly that he is characterized as rather a dour man and you re-characterize him as just quite seriously passionate about, what is it, everything from politics to soccer and so on. Yes, and he was um, he he was a very he was a very passionate person about politics. There's no doubt about it. It was his main preoccupation, and anyone who wasn't interested in politics, he wasn't interested in. And um, he, he was he was after all a psychiatrist, and uh, he just took a look at someone and decided, "You, I'm for, uh, I'm with you. I'm not with you." Uh, I can talk to you. I can't talk to you. It was an immediate reaction. So to some, he he was perceived as dour uh, because he ignored them or wouldn't speak with them. Uh, to others, he was very open, friendly, uh, but you had to be interested in politics and you had to talk politics. Uh, that was it. So in a way, he was basically North African already. But I mean, we did go dancing. <laughs> you did go dancing, yeah. yeah. So we don't see that often. So I, I really loved your, your sort of anecdotes about Fanon in here. Um, and you, so you mentioned that uh, the Cleavers arrived in Algiers in 1969, roughly coinciding with the uh, first Pan-African cultural festival that you had a part in organizing. Can you yes. tell us a bit about the festival? Well, um, the festival was mainly the work of uh, Mohammed bin Yahya, who was Minister of Information. And um, it was an attempt by Algeria to include themselves in Africa generally and not be considered North African as separate from Black Africa. And um, it was a tremendous job for an underdeveloped country. And uh, Ben Yahya got a team together, which I was a member. And uh, we, we worked like crazy. And um, we organized not only um, theater programs, but street programs, uh, all of the African countries came. I think every one of them was there with big delegations of dancers and singers and theater people, uh, as well as uh, intellectuals, because on the um, a co on correlation with the street performances and the theater performances, there was also a symposium uh, for African leaders. And... Um, 
the Americans who came, I must say, had tremendous uh, appeal. It was Nina Simon, uh, Archie Shep and his group of uh, musicians. Uh, there were some uh, poets, uh, photographers, uh, theater people. It was um, extraordinary. And um, it was uh, something that Algiers has never seen since. The streets were open, women with veils and kids and uh, all came to the performances in the streets and the, on the squares of Algiers. It was quite amazing that we paraded in the streets uh, night and day. The performances went on all until three and four in the morning and the women were there and it was an amazing experience. I don't know what else I can say. Oh, no, I'm, uh, so the festival was filmed officially by William Klein. Mm -hmm. It was the French-American, American-French. Yeah, uh, just American. Just American. Yeah. Just American. So <laughs> William Klein uh, uh, was commissioned to produce the official uh, documentary. And uh, I mean, for those of you who uh, have ever read, and perhaps you have read this too, uh, uh, Souf, the Moroccan avant-garde magazine yes, around this period. It, yes. yes. Uh, uh, Usman Samban uh, uh, conducted an interview in that where he was actually quite annoyed that an American had been asked to film the festival rather than oh. rather than an African filmmaker at the time. Um, and at these symposia, there were quite a lot of debates about a prior African arts festival, the 66 Festival in Dhaka, uh, about negritude and its continuing utility. Uh, for African culture, for African political uh, sort of world making and so on. Do you recall much of, I mean, this is my own yeah. bias. This, these are my interests. So you, yeah. do you recall much of this debate, these sorts of debates circulating at the time? Well, I do remember that, I mean, North Africa was more or less excluded from the Negritude Conference and uh, festival. So North Africa wanted, wanted to be included in Africa. And this was one of the reasons behind, one of the reasons, some of the reasoning behind the organization of the 69 festival. Uh, as far as um, the uh, filmmakers were concerned, uh, Ben Yahir was looking for someone who had some kind of international reputation and who had some kind of experience with the multicultural um, uh, filmmaking. And there were two, only two bids. One was from William Klein, and the other was from the man who did um, Orfeo Negro, which was about the, uh, the uh, festival in Rio. Uh, they were the only two bids there were. And Klein won out mainly because he had done a film on um, uh, Muhammad Ali, a very nice uh, documentary on Muhammad Ali. And so he went out over the, the man who, I forget his name now, um, who did the, uh, the Rio film, yeah. Uh, there were no other candidates. Uh, I don't know whether there were any um, uh, African filmmakers who had that kind of experience at the time. This is 1960, this is 1969, huh? This is a long time ago. Hmm. And of course, uh, even during the, the revolution itself, the FLN were quite savvy at building their international reputation um, oh, yes. through this sort of uh, broad appeal. So this, I think that probably relates to this. Yeah. So, okay, now you've clarified a point in history. Semben was a little upset and I wanted to know more about that. Oh, so <laughs> I met Semben. Uh, of course you met Semben. <laughs> I have to tell you, please buy this when it comes out because you have met everybody, Elaine. Like, from politicians to artists. You, did you meet Maria Makeba too? You yes, did, of I just remembered. You did. <laughs> of course. So uh, Elaine, at one point during the festival itself, Elaine, you and Maria Makeba had to coax a, an inebriated Nina Simone onto the stage um, where she then enchanted apparently the entire 
uh, massive audience with Nemekitepa. Uh, and Boumedjian was in the, uh, Huari Boumedjian, the president at the time, yeah. was in the audience as well. Oh, yeah. Boumedjian was in the audience and he was, I could see him. I saw him <laughs> clapping away when, when uh, Nina Simone sang. Oh, she had theoretically four performances. We had to, uh, Miriam and I went to the hotel to see her to try to, try to straighten her up. Um, she was dead drunk. <laughs> And uh, so she missed the first performance, but she did the other three, and the last two were terrific. <laughs> and, and those are the ones William Klein got on camera. So, <laughs> okay. um, so many of the perspectives of this time and place uh, tend to be quite masculinist and tend to be quite focused, even in academia, even in, especially in academia, uh, uh, quite focused on uh, male actors in this period. And you, you yourself as a woman encounting, recounting this, this history that you're a part of, um, but as well as the, the sort of uh, contemporary experiences of the women that you were around is really a necessary injection into how we formulate our modern understanding of this period. Do you feel that you were conscious of the sort of casual sexism that permeated these spaces? Uh, or did you feel you actually had quite a fair shot um, as this woman, and not only as a woman, as an American woman in Algeria, uh, organizing with quite a lot of men. I mean, you have quite a lot of male companions here as well. Did you? How did you interpret yourself at, at that moment and, and, re, and in retrospect uh, as a woman in this moment? Uh, it's a tough one. Um, yes, you couldn't help but be cowed by the veils and the way women were treated uh, but on the other hand, there were openings. There were a lot of women who had been in the FLN and in the ALN, both, and who had been imprisoned by the French during the war for their activity uh, in favor of independence. There were a lot of, lot of uh, Algerian women. And those women um, were open, they spoke, they were in politics, um, it made you feel that that the rest would be liberated. And uh, it gave you a positive feeling. I never felt um, discriminated against as a woman, though I could see how men were treating women around me. Um, it's a hard question to answer. Um, it's for sure that uh, that uh, women were not free, that um, some women who had had a certain kind of political experience uh, took hold of what freedom there was and used it. But I myself uh, felt that I was able to manipulate things. Uh, somehow get through the mass of uh, interdictions. <laughs> and were you a unique character in Algiers at this time? As this I don't know, you know, fluent I, in French. I didn't think that much <laughs> about that, but I suppose I was. Uh, I was the only American, men, male or female, beside the people at the embassy. And... Um, in fact, uh, one of the guys at the embassy once told me that he that they considered me the second American embassy in Algiers. <laughs> and uh, we get a picture of that from your memoir because every time, let's say, an American hijacker rolls through, they beckon you to come do translation work. Yeah. Um, and hijackers, hijacking planes to be specific, were not an uncommon. Uh, not an uncommon occurrence, uh, oh. in the 70s especially. Um, you also bore, you didn't only bear witness and, and actually help facilitate the establishment of the International Black Panther Party in Algiers, but you witnessed the split, the sort of breakup of the Black Panther Party between, I guess, what we could call cleavers, 
side of it in Algiers versus Huey Newton's in the US. Um, but as this is going on, um, you and Kathleen Neal Cleaver did a tour in the United States uh, speaking about not only the Black Panther Party, but also uh, third worldist revolution. Uh, uh, and you, you built these sort of connections together in the US. So I want to ask what your experience was going back to the United States and speaking about this international struggle to an American audience that you discuss at moments is not totally up on what's happening in the world through sometimes no fault of their own, poor reporting and so on. Um, but you had quite a number of experiences I found really interesting uh, as you were speaking to American audiences about what had become sort of a daily uh, occurrence for you, which is revolutionary political talk. Yeah, yeah I, I found that nobody knew anything about the world. Kathleen and I started this tour um, because there had been this split in the Black Panther Party and uh, we were trying to gain uh, uh, influence and support from American audiences, uh, both white and black audiences. And um, the minute you left New York, uh, there was really no information about the outside world. It was amazing. I, I don't know how, how much it's changed today, but at the time there was really little. Well, uh, what do you think, New Yorkers? <laughs> <laughs> there was nothing. They knew nothing about African liberation movements. They knew nothing about uh, colonialism. They, they were totally, people, the audiences were totally ignorant of uh, what was going on outside in the world. They knew that there was a war in Vietnam. But even there, they knew little a bit little about that war. Uh, was, uh, they knew, the ignorance was total. And so Kathleen and I more or less um, uh, shared the, uh, the information. She talked about the Panthers and the split and the need to create a new organization and, and stay militant. And I talked about what was going on in the world, uh, liberation movements and... Uh, what was happening in South Africa, for example? Nobody, what do you think? It was, it was quite amazing. Hmm. Um, Kathleen uh, Neil Cleaver has also written quite a bit about her time in Algiers. Um, and one of the things that I recall from her own writings uh, is that the, the Panther members in Algiers themselves needed quite a political education upon arriving in Algeria. Mm. Um, they had been drawn there, of course, by Fanon's The Black Bible, The Wretched of the Earth, by the Battle of Algiers, which you had a role in. Um, Elaine appeared in Gilo Pontecorvo's film, The Battle of Algiers, for approximately 30 seconds, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, 30 seconds. Yes. I, I, I've been led to believe that if you were present in the city at the time, you could probably get a role in the film. <laughs> um, so they'd been drawn there through these, again, very well-circulated, uh, uh, very appealing revolutionary texts and, and film, uh, but upon arriving actually needed quite a bit of help adjusting to uh, the concept of, let's say, French colonialism in, colonialism in Algeria, the way in which Algerians understood themselves as part of a larger global uh, liberation moment, can you uh, discuss some of the ways that you, or some of the questions that you received from the Panthers members you encountered while, while you were with them? I think them? one of the things that shocked them the most was to see veiled women. Uh, I don't know as they realized that uh, this was possible in a revolutionary country. Um, they... Uh, also were very outspoken um, and gave their ideas and uh, were very American in their uh, attitudes. And of course, the Algerians were very closed mouths. Uh, they had learned from many years of French colonialism and especially for the war, from the war that one kept things to oneself and only talked intimately to people in whom one had confidence. And this was, these were attitudes that the, the Panthers didn't understand. <laughs> but they quickly learned that you had to be careful about 
what you say and, uh, and also not judge too quickly. Um, they weren't, uh, yeah, not judged too quickly, especially when they saw the veiled women and uh, the attitude of men towards women. They were uh, quite shocked, I think. It's it's worth noting. I'm sorry, I must do this. That um, that Eldridge Cleaver was 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 not quite uh, an exemplar of egalitarian gender relations himself. Um, so. There is maybe a lot of push and pull there. Um, so you are a writer, you were a journalist, you taught journalism in Algeria as well. Yeah. You're painting. Uh, I haven't gotten to see your painting, so I, I looked on your website. Oh. Um, and your late husband, Mahtar, uh, also wrote quite a bit, uh, became very interested in writing about Algerian history and particularly for undereducated uh, uh, people, which of course during French colonialism is quite a significant portion of the population. Uh, I would love to hear more about your relationship with Mokhtar, which seems to be just this, I mean, there's parts that are romance, parts that are international intrigue, but you, your relationship with Mokhtar was actually quite remarkable and I really enjoyed learning about him and, and really the profound political and intellectual work that you two did together. So could you tell us a little bit about how you met and, and who he was? Well, I, we met quite accidentally. Um, we, met, I, we met as I left my ministry and he lived a few streets away and we were introduced by a, uh, a mutual friend. But um, he was... Um, he, had, he was from a small town in the middle of Algeria, uh, Berwagia, and uh, he was uh, one of six brothers, the only one to get an education. Uh, he went to the French Lycée and uh, got a scholarship to the French Lycée and uh, away from home and uh, got involved in politics very early very young, and organized a clandestine cell for the uh, National Liberation Front in his lycée uh, before he graduated. He um, joined the National Liberation Army as soon as he could. Um, it was hard to get in, uh, this is hard to believe, but it was hard to get into the Liberation Army. It was not, you didn't just go somewhere and recruit and be taken in. It was a much more elaborate, difficult way uh, assignment. He got into the National Liberation Army and was in one of the first groups that was trained as a signal corps operator, Morse. He was trained in Morse. This was amazing at the time. Uh, the French couldn't believe that the, that the Algerians had uh, dominated Morse and had found um, had found the kind of uh, equipment necessary to deliver messages in Morse. And uh, he led, an, he led a, a, a group of, uh, a signal corps group into the Maquis in southwest Algeria. Uh, in, I guess it was about 1956 or 57, 57 probably. And uh, he was, um, was able to transmit from army headquarters inside Algeria to the uh, uh, Algerian officers' uh, headquarters in Morocco. And even later, with better equipment uh, to do even better, get even, even get heard in, um, in Tunisia. He ended the war uh, uh, in, in Tunis with the provisional government in the headquarters of the ministry of, that was ahead of the Signal Corps. And uh, quickly went, uh, went back to uh, studies, and he started university studies. He was the first president of the Algerian National Student Association in independent Algeria and uh, organized it uh, over the course of a year and had a formal conference of it. Then he went on to 
uh, get um, uh, degrees in sociology and economics and law and so on uh, in both Algeria and in Paris. And when I met him, he was working at the, I met him 10 years after I'd been in Algeria. Uh, I was still working at the Ministry of Information at the time, and he was working at the Sonatrack, which is this big oil and gas uh, conglomerate of Algeria. And um, he, uh, he became gradually disillusioned by many things. Um, in particular, his work experience, uh, how do I say it? The, the blockage that was, the blockage that was uh, created by certain members of the team in uh, the Sona Track to newcomers who were qualified, who had an education and um, he was he, he worked at the Sonatrack but had no work. So he finally left and uh, did other small jobs uh, in other national uh, companies. Uh, when I got uh, uh, expelled from Algeria, I was deported from Algeria. Uh, when yeah. I was deported from Algeria, he was very concerned and, and came with me. He came out a few, minutes, a few months later. And then he started writing uh, books about uh, Islam, about um, the Muslim world, about uh, North Africa, for young adults. So they were illustrated albums. Yeah. And um, I mean, we lived together for 44 years, and uh, he died here in New York. So. He sounds. Um, he sounds like a wonderful man. <laughs> um, I enjoyed reading about him quite a lot. Um, I suppose I'm going to ask one last question so that we can have some questions from the audience. Okay. Um, and I'm sorry to be a Debbie Downer, but it's, it's actually, I want to turn to that disillusionment. Um, when you, you were expelled from Algeria in 1974, was it? Uh, 1972. 72, I'm sorry, two years earlier. Um, after, ref I mean, oh, part... 1974, you're right. So, you're right. <laughs> 1974. I'm sorry. I, it's because I took too many notes. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and you, but you sort of saw this coming. There was a sort of clamping down in many arenas of the government. Um, something that happens in a lot of post-colonial states where the revolutionary ideals that had been built up remain, but the state turns inward and eventually reproduces in many ways a lot of the colonial structures that pre-existed it. Mm. And, and I, I just want to ask you about, you haven't been back since, it's 1974 to Algeria? You haven't been back to Algeria no, since, no. you're still not allowed in the country. I just got noticed that so, I will have a visa. Oh, I just got noticed that I will, that I will get the visa. Okay, so there's, there's hope yet. Um, I guess then what are, I'll turn to that. What, what would your feelings be upon going back to Algeria? What are... What, oh, uh, soulagement. <laughs> uh, delight. I'm delighted to be able to go back. Uh, it's a country that's part of me and uh, never left me. Uh, I cry when I think of Algeria. It was uh, my youth and our, our ideals. Yeah, I'm delighted to go back. I'm very glad you got a visa. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Elaine, and for thanks speaking. Thanks to a woman. Thanks to a woman, always thanks to a woman. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for speaking with me, Elaine, and I'm sure that there are other folks with many questions for you, so I would like to invite you to ask Elaine or me, but I don't think you want to talk to me. Uh, anything oh, you'd like. <laughs> you express and I have a microphone for questions. Okay. Uh, thank you. It was a fascinating talk. A quick question about your, um, your identity and you being Jewish. I don't know if you can hear me well. Yeah. yeah. 
uh, w was your identity and you being Jewish in any way an impediment to some of the work you were doing? Was that helpful? Did you or were you part of the Jewish community in Algeria when you were there or you were as a, treated as a, as a foreigner? I'd be quite interested to, to understand how that played in your, in your dynamics locally. Well, um, no, I wasn't part of the uh, Jewish community. There, wasn't, there weren't many Jews left, believe me. Most of them had left uh, on independence. And um, I never felt uh, that there was any kind of prejudice or ill feeling towards me because of it. I do feel that being Jewish and being raised in the United States, especially in small communities where there were no other Jews but our family, had a tr tremendous effect on me as a person. And uh, I think that was essential. Uh, but in Algiers, um, as far as I know, I may have been one incident, but it was nothing. Um, I didn't feel, uh, I was an American. And that's the way I was looked upon, an American. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, uh, thanks, thanks very much for the talk. Um, I'm just wondering, is there a visual record of the period 69 through 72 of when, the, uh, when you had that critical mass of Panthers in Algiers? What did you say? A visual, record, uh, a visual record of the Panthers in Algeria from 69 to the 70s. You know, we didn't take pictures. In those days, we didn't, we weren't all with our cameras running around taking pictures. I have no pictures, and I doubt that they have many pictures. Most of the pictures that exist uh, were taken by journalists who came to interview Eldridge. Um, it's really, a, it's a shame, but that's the way it is. Uh, I regret it tremendously, but we had might have had cameras, but we weren't going around flashing. Yeah, Maybe, little, Sophia, you can very speak little. Uh, I read, um, oh yes, well there is one thing. When Eldridge uh, and Kathleen and a few others, uh, uh, I think, um, said away, oh, and Denise Oliver went, and Bill Stevens went to, um, to the Repub Congo Republic, Brazzaville. They took pictures. Uh, they had uh, a porta pack with them, and they took, they filmed, and they took pictures, and they made a film, and I thought that film was lost and never reproduced. But I just read yesterday uh, that a copy was found here in New York, and um, so there is that film of that delegation in, in uh, Brazzaville and in uh, Cabinda, which is. Um, an offshoot of uh, Angola, where, which they visited during that trip. Um, from the archives also that I've accessed in my research, um, so William Klein, the American filmmaker who documented the Algiers, the 69 festival, he also uh, made a short documentary of, of Eldridge Cleaver while he was there. Um, and the Black Panther Party newspaper, of course, reproduced many images of the Panthers in Algiers. Uh, one of which is, I, this is just the galley cover, so this won't be the book itself, uh, book cover itself, yeah. uh, but one of which is here. So there's all of these photos from the festival. Uh, so basically the, the Panthers have just arrived and many more will come for the festival itself. Um, there are images of that that I believe are all accessible online because the Black Panther Party newspaper was uh, uploaded by many brave people, brave and kind archivists out there. So those can be found. Uh, but yeah, that Klein documentary, it's, uh, he it was making that at the same time as the festival one. Yes, that's right. He made the film on Eldridge. <laughs> it's an hour long film. Yes. 
And uh, there's also, um, if you look online, you'll find a lot of film, a lot of um, images of the Af Pan African Festival, and the Americans dominated those uh, those images. I mean, they're everywhere. Archie Shep and so on. And they're all out. So if you look online at uh, some of the uh, big news agencies, you, know, you find pictures of the Pan African Festival of 1969. Yeah. Hi, Elaine. Hi. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask, maybe you could talk a little bit about the interactions of the PLO with the Black Panthers, since you mentioned the PLO. Oh, uh, well, um, the PLO uh, was um, very dominant in Algiers, and um, uh, the Panthers at first uh, were surprised, and but they supported PLO, and we had a number of meetings with them. Uh, and I remember when the first meeting took place, when they contacted me to uh, for, to ask for an interview for El from Eldridge, and uh, we went to meet them, and they were very uh, very supportive. Uh, the PLO of the Panthers and the Panthers of the PLO. It worked beautifully. Uh, it was amazing. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, um, prior, many years prior to that, Huey Newton had a meeting with uh, the PLO in, in Palestine. Yes. And um, they, they, this is where the Panthers' concept of uh, revolutionary intercommunalism starts to take shape and 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 eventually leads. Uh, yeah, I, I'm the I'm the scholar. <laughs> yes, there's so much more articulate, yeah. so much more than I do. No, there's. I mean, but you actually knew all these people. I, I just read about them. But <laughs> we have time for one last question. Can you take the microphone? Thank you for your talk. I look forward to reading your book. Just, uh, just curious to know how at the 1969 festival, characters such as Songo, uh, you mentioned the French kind of uh, negritude movement, leaders of the negritude movement were there present. How they related to and with the Black Panther people and those people who thought more in terms of, I guess, Pan-African Socialism. How did that work? So the Senghors, yeah. So Leopold said our Senghor. Oh, Senghor. And the Panthers. Oh. I, I really can't answer that question. Um, I don't know whether the Panthers knew much about Senghor. I really have no answer to it. I can't. I can't say. I don't know as they. Um, realized uh, who Sangor was. I have no idea. I really, I really can't say. No, I can't answer the question. S Sophia, do you have a last question or comment? Um, I will say that one of the things that I love about this moment in time are I, I, I you write beautifully about solidarity and, and all this international movements, and I really look at how everyone is pissing each other off. So I really like the, the tensions that sort of underlie this third world, this moment. Um, I don't know anything specific about the Panthers and Senghor, but I do know that Senghorian negritude was considered not only in Algiers, but amongst many, many revolutionaries in, by 1969 especially to be, for them, outdated. And I believe that this is because, for one part, that Senghor really believed that culture should be distinct from politics. Um, and of course, Senghor and Senegal maintained, uh, maintained relationships with France that I think a lot of this third world bloc would have, oh, no, they, would have been quite skeptical of. Yes, I, I don't think that we could consider Senghor and, and uh, uh, Dakar at the time as being part of the revolutionary Africa. I no, don't think so. 
Yeah. And so that's why you have this wild ending of the festival with Archie Shep and these Tuareg musicians yeah. and it's jazz centric and and yeah, not as stodgy as I think a lot of people <laughs> saw Senegal as being. Yeah. Right. Right. Thank you all Thank for coming. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you all. Much. Thank you very much, uh, Elaine and Sophia, for this conversation. I encourage everyone to... Yeah, and they are on the table, the leaflets um, uh, with the kind of abstract of the book. We resume here for our last panel in about 20 minutes, um, holding space with Nonsikilelo Mutiti, Joeri Minaya, and Nilika Jayawardani. Thank you. <laughs>